0: For those of you who are our guests, we welcome you. For those of you who have been here for decades and decades, welcome to Resurrection Sunday morning to you as well. The title of this teaching series, as we have been moving into Easter, has been entitled Crown Him King. What does it mean to crown Jesus King in our personal lives? And one of the things to denote as we sit here on Easter Sunday morning is this. That Christmas, to most people, is the premier Christian expression from the Bible. But here's what I want to tell you. Christmas only even appears in two of the four Gospels. Only two. But Easter appears in all four gospels. As a matter of fact, two of the gospels, almost the last one-third of the gospel is all about Jesus turning the compass of his life towards Jerusalem to be killed, buried, and resurrected on the third day. Easter is the pinnacle of the Christian faith. It is. It is. I don't want to depress you, it is not Christmas, it is Easter, and if Easter were not the resurrection of Jesus, you would never have heard about Christmas at all, ever. And so what I would like for us to do this morning is we're going to take a look at Easter. My stated agenda is, is that when you exit this auditorium, you will have an understanding and a perspective of the resurrection of Jesus in such a way so that you would be able to maybe articulate it not just in your mind, but in your heart, because Christianity and being a follower of Jesus is not just lived in our minds, but also lived in our hearts. Now, for those of you who've been part of CITY for many years, you know that every once in a while I get up and tell you that I have felt led to switch my message on the morning that I preach it. This is one of those mornings. And I was in prayer this morning and thought to myself, Oh, good Lord, why do I have to feel this leading on Easter of all Sundays? But here it goes. I would like to introduce Easter to you and the Jesus of Easter as my friend. I want to introduce him to you. You see, I read an incredible uh, article on the most famous newspaper in the world called Facebook. And if you read it on Facebook, you know it's true. I I read an article many years ago that really did shift my view of introducing a friend. And what this article said that was posted on a friend of mine's website, here's what he said, or here's what the article said. It said, when you are at a party or you're somewhere where you meet people and you are standing with a friend, when you introduce them to another person, never share what they do. What you want to do is share with those other people what this person means to you and why. Don't say what they do. Share what this person means to you and why. In other words, let's say you're at work and you're a nurse and you've got a friend named Lisa who's a nurse with you. And you happen to be out somewhere, and another friend of yours walks towards you, and Lisa is with you. Instead of saying, Hey, Lisa is a nurse, what you would say is something like this I want to introduce you to my friend Lisa. She means so much to me. And the reason why she means so much to me is the other day I botched a surgery and she stayed after to help me fix my mistake. (laughs) Remember, this is a sermon on the resurrection. (laughs) I already did this for you this morning. I introduced to you my friend Dick Foth. Dick Foth is a very good friend of mine. And I know this is a little bit out of order, but is there any way we can pull up the video that Dick Foth sent to us to greet us this morning? Go ahead and roll the video. Hello friends at City Church in Charlottesville. Dick Foth here. I'm very much looking forward to being with you next Sunday. This Sunday, you
1: are celebrating Resurrection morning. Next Sunday, I'd like to talk to you about
0: Resurrection afternoon. (laughs) where Jesus shows up, meets a couple of friends unexpectedly, they didn't expect him, and they had dinner together. It really
1: doesn't get much better than that. Little walking trip, Jesus with you, dinner together. What it means to be friends in tough times. I look forward to being with you there. Bye-bye.
0: That's my friend, Dick Foth. I could tell you a couple facts about him. He was a college president. He was a pastor. He ran the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. Those are facts about him. But instead, as I referenced earlier, I would say this to you. Next Sunday, my friend Dick Foth will be with us. The reason why he means so much to me is that when I was a young pastor and I was confused and couldn't figure out what I was doing and how to do it, he showed up in my life and gave me a perspective of ministry through which, from then on, those lenses have been how I have viewed what I do. That's my friend Dick Foth. In other words, I've shared with you what he means to me and why he means so much to me, and has for 25 plus years. This morning, I would like us to take a look at the Jesus of Easter the same way. I want to talk to you about what Jesus means to me and why, and I believe by the time we're done, you will at least be interested in maybe getting to know him as your friend as well. What I can tell you is, is that almost all friendships have a defining moment. If I was to say to you, think right now about one of your closest friends, and if I were to walk off this platform and approach you, maybe Steve Garland here, and I approach Steve, and I say, Steve, tell me about one of your friends, your closest friends, what would Steve say? What would you say if I asked you that question? By and large, most friendships have a defining moment. There's something that happened. I shared you mine with Dick Foth. I was in trouble in ministry. The person that I was serving under, just to be honest with you, their morality and their character was so broken that I knew I could not go to them. And all of a sudden, I'm in this crisis, and Dick Foth showed up. And he helped me, and he walked with me. Now what I can tell you is this. Those defining moments are what cement us together. But the most defining moments, and when we find someone as our true friend, is when they identify us or identify with us, not just in our victories, but in our defeats. A true friend is someone that identifies with us when we hit the home run, and they identify with us when we trip and fall running to first base. And so what I would like for us to do is to take a look at Easter in such a way where you will learn that Jesus is your friend because He identifies with you at your worst. Too many people believe that a relationship with God happens because you're good enough. That you can stand before God and upload all the best of your life. And in doing so, somehow God will find favor. The Newer Testament teaches us that through Jesus, God approaches us very, very differently. That Christ identifies with us in our worst. Not just at our best. And I believe almost all of us are dying for this kind of friendship with God. I believe that we are. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at Easter. But what you have to understand is Easter alone makes absolutely no sense unless you look at the crucifixion and what happened just before it as well. It is the two sides of one coin. You can't just look at Easter and talk about the resurrection unless you also turn over the coin and talk about the crucifixion and what leads up to it. And so, I want us to begin this morning on a brief biblical journey so that you and I together can discover my friend Jesus. I want to begin here, Isaiah chapter 53 verse 3. This is a scripture that was written by the prophet Isaiah. He's the most quoted Older Testament prophet in the entire New Testament. And here's what he wrote prophetically as he looked towards Jesus 700 years before he was born. Here's what Jesus, or Isaiah says about Christ. He was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom we hide or whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. That's one of the most accurate Older Testament introductions to Jesus that there is. I want to read it again. Think about What God says through the prophet about Jesus, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and people thought very little of him. When you begin to look to the Newer Testament as we look at that crucifixion side of the coin of who Jesus is, there's an episode in the Newer Testament that I find shocking. It is quoted in detail in two of the Gospels. It's an event in the life of Jesus as he moves towards the cross. And this event is an event where Jesus identifies with us in our shame." Our shame. It's found in Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 30. I want to read it for you. Jesus, by the way, at this point, has already been flogged. He would have been shackled. His death sentence was sealed, and He was going to be headed, He was going to be taken out to be crucified. But there's a little diversion that happens that would have been highly unregular or irregular in crucifixion. This little diversion is where Matthew 27, 27 picks up for us. It says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. In other words, it almost appears like they went bed to bed, and they said, wake up, wake up, gather around you, don't want to miss this, this is going to be fun. So those soldiers, there were probably just two of them that were leading him to be crucified, stop at the praetorium, they gather the whole company of Roman soldiers around him. Verse 28, they stripped him. The shame begins. They strip him. They put a scarlet robe on him. Then they twisted together a crown of thorns. And they set it on his head. And they put a staff in his right hand. You see, Jesus had announced he was the king of the Jews. Everyone knew it. Pilate knew it. Herod knew it. The Jews in and around Jerusalem knew it. Jesus had announced that he was king of the Jews, and so the Romans are bringing him mockery and shame. How they do it is they strip him naked, then they put a scarlet robe on him, and then they take and weave a crown of thorns. I was in Israel about five weeks ago. These thorn trees are all over Israel. They're about two and a half to three and a half inch long thorns. And the Bible says that they weave a crown for him and they shove it down on his head. And then they put a red robe on him because he's royal. And they put a staff in his hand. You see, a king's staff is the sign of his authority. The robe is the sign of his dignity. And the crown is the sign of his positional authority. The Romans dress him up like a king. And then reading on, it tells us that they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. And then they spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. They're mocking him. They're shaming him. I don't need to remind you that the staff is the sign of his authority. The crown is the sign of his positional authority. And they take the staff, which is his authority, and they hit him over the head where the crown is, driving the crown of thorns deeper into his head. It's interesting to me that these Roman soldiers go so far out of their way And they spend extra energy to bring him shame. You know, there's a way in this world where some people derive pleasure out of making other people suffer pain. That's where they find pleasure. That's what's happening here. They're bringing Jesus shame and humiliation and embarrassment. There's no need for it. They're getting ready to execute Him. But they purposefully take the time, and the Gospels record to us that this is happening. I want to say this to you. Some of you who are sitting here this morning have experienced something similar. Someone in your life has gone way out of their way to make sure that you have suffered. They have gone way out of their way, and in a very kind of unreasonable fashion, they have made sure that they have mocked you and made you suffer. And you're sitting here, and you know that event, and there is shame in your soul. By the way, a brilliant theologian said about the shaming of Jesus and it was this, if someone shames you for what is false, there is a strength through which you can bear under it. But if someone shames you for what is true, there's no escaping the shame. He was the king of the Jews and they are shaming him for what is true. Shame. I know that some of you sitting here have had things done to you that should have never been done. Some of you have been bullied. Others of you have had other things done. And because there's little ears in the auditorium, I promise you that what took place to Jesus in the praetorium had a highly perverse overtone to it. They humiliated him in every possible way. And the shame of that was grinding. I want you to understand that if you have shame, Jesus identifies with you in the midst of your shame. I believe that this little paragraph that seems like Matthew just inserted it at the last moment is divinely inspired because God wants you to understand that if you've been through shame, He understands through His Son. He understands. And then one of the Newer Testament writers in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says this, For the joy set before Him Jesus endured the cross. And what are the next three words? What are they? Scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the the throne of God. In other words, in the midst of that shame, Jesus took it on himself. And yet he found victory through it because God resurrected him from the dead. What I want to say to you this morning is this. If you have an episode of shame, you feel it in your soul, please know that Christ identifies with you in the midst of your shame. He stands with you. He stands with you. I want to introduce you to my friend Jesus. He will not abandon you in the midst of your shame. He will not. Some of you sitting here believe that that episode of shame is where God turns a blind eye, and what we know is the crucifixion of Jesus, that side of the coin of Easter is the side of the coin that tells you that God is with you in the midst of that. He does not turn a blind eye. Now, some of you sitting here would say, you know what, Pete, I have shame too. But my shame is not because of what was done to me. My shame is because what I've done to others. That's where my shame comes from. And you know what? The Bible calls that type of action sin. That's what it is. It's sin. And you see on the cross and moving towards his execution, Jesus not only identifies with us in our shame but he also identifies with us in our sin. Let's go back to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah in chapter 53 verses 5 through 6 says the following about Jesus as he prophetically looks into the future and he identifies Christ. He writes, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace is on Him, and by His wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. You see, Jesus on the cross, not only identifies in the moving towards His execution, not only is a friend to us in our shame, but He's also a, sin to, a friend to us in our sin. The Newer Testament writer Paul goes on to say the following about Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Here's what he writes. God made Him, meaning Jesus, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. By the way, an amen goes there. You see, please understand, many people believe That because of their sin, God backs off and yet the cross teaches us and what Jesus goes through, it's because of my sin that God approaches me through Christ. It's because of it. And yet when we look at the cross, we begin to understand the weightiness of sin and what it means. You see, sin is an archer's term. It means to miss the bullseye. How many of you have ever shot a bow and arrow of sinned a whole lot? You see, the idea here, it's when you know how you're to aim and what you're to aim for, but you miss the mark, and sin means you miss the mark intentionally. You know, ultimately, sin does bring separation from God. But it's not just separation from God, it's separation from people, too. You see, when sin becomes part of our lives and it gets its grip on us, it doesn't just distance that relationship with God, but it distances our relationship with people as well. But I want you to notice so clearly what the Bible teaches us, is that Jesus Christ, while on the cross being crucified, He who had no sin literally became sin for us. He took my sin on him. And there's a biblical maxim, and it's this, sin always brings death. You see, in the Older Testament when Israel had sinned, the way they covered their sin was through sacrifice and offerings. The primary sacrifice for every family was to take a lamb to let out its blood. And to use that blood as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the past year. And now Jesus hangs on the cross. And when he hangs on the cross, the Bible tells us he became sin for us. That his blood that was being shed shed is an atonement for my sin and for yours. But here's what I love about this. My friend Jesus identifies with me in my sin. He doesn't abandon me. He's a true friend. So whether I have shame or I have sin, the cross screams to me that he is a true friend and he identifies with me. Jesus on the cross said seven things, but one of them is absolutely profound. While nailed to the cross, Jesus quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, and it's this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross experienced for the very first time a stretching, a separating of His relationship with His heavenly Father. As sin is placed on Him, God begins to back away. And as God backs away from His Son, Jesus cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had never felt that separation before never. And then also on the cross, he said two other things. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What a thought. Well, they knew what they were doing. They were expert executioners. They knew exactly what they were doing. And yet Jesus announces, Father, forgive them. And his next words were the completion of a contractual agreement. In Jesus' day, if you had a contract, you would shake that person's hand upon the fulfillment of it and then you would say this, it is finished. Jesus on the cross announces the completion of his contractual agreement with God that he would become sin for us so that in him we would be considered righteous before God. The last thing that Jesus does in identifying with us is not just through shame and sin, but he identifies with us in death. You see if we go back to the prophet Isaiah who literally prophetically 700 years before Jesus was born before crucifixion was even thought of looks into the future and he prophetically announces over Jesus Isaiah 53 verses 11 and 12 After he has suffered he will see the light of light and be satisfied. By his knowledge many righteous servant, my righteous servant, will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, this is God speaking about Jesus, I will give him a portion among the great, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered among the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made ends intercession for transgressors. I love that first part of that verse where God announces over Jesus because he poured himself out unto death that God will give him a special place, a special place, and he will see the light of life. Now we come to resurrection morning. Jesus is dead, he died on Good Friday. The Bible is absolutely quiet about Saturday. There's not a word. Why? It's because it's the Sabbath. And as His heavenly Father had done throughout creation, He rested on the Sabbath day. Jesus has now completed His work, and He is resting, and it is quiet. But on resurrected morning, That morning of Christ's resurrection, the Bible tells us an incredible story. And it's found in Matthew 28, 5 through 6. Here's what the Bible says. The, The two women, who's both named, are Mary. They come to the tomb. And the gospel's very clue, clear. They didn't come to the tomb to find a resurrected Jesus. It actually says in Matthew 28 that the two Marys, who, oh, by the way, were the last people mentioned at his crucifixion Mary of Magdalene and the other Mary, they were faithful to the end. They come the next morning. A day later, after the Sabbath, they show up. On resurrection morning, and Matthew tells us in chapter 28, they came to look at the tomb. They were coming to sit on a bench, to sit on the ground, and look at a stone that had sealed it. But what you will find in the book of Matthew is incredible. The Gospel of Mark tells us that they made their way to the tomb with spices to embalm Jesus' body because they had to stick him in the tomb so quickly there was no opportunity to culturally prepare his body to decay. They had their spices. On the way to the tomb, they're conversing with each other, and they say, who's going to roll away the stone? They're not strong enough. So their plan was to come and sit in front of the tomb And to look at a sealed tomb and wait until someone would appear who would roll the stone away but here's what matthew tells us that while they're there the angel of the lord comes down and with his pinky finger flicks away the stone and he sits on it and as one african-american preacher once preached it he said this that angel came down with his pinky finger, flicked away the stone. And then he leaned back and was chilling on it when the two Marys approached the tomb. And Matthew tells us that those two temple guards who were strong and powerful men, when the angel came down and rolled back the stone, they fainted. And the African American preacher said, they messed their pampers and (laughs) fell over like dead men. And I love that. And the Marys are there. And then this incredible verse is said, Matthew 28, 5 and 6. The angel said to the Marys, to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He was dead. And then they say this. He is not here he has risen just as he said. "Wow. Amen goes there. And these two women, and you've got to understand this, they're his closest followers, and when they show up at the tomb, they're not looking for a resurrection, they're looking for a decaying body on which they will put about a hundred pounds of spice, His closest followers didn't believe, he would be resurrected. And now all of the Christian faith gets whittled down to a resurrected Jesus and two women who never expected him to be raised from the dead. The Bible says in that garden they meet Jesus and they clasp his feet and they worship him. And then the Christian faith takes off like a rocket. It goes from Jesus and two women in a garden. A resurrected Jesus and two women in a garden. And we sit here 2,000 years later and we still marvel over what Christ has done for us. We marvel. I can promise you that if I had done the resurrection, If I had done the resurrection, Hollywood could never compare to how I would have done it. No possible way. There would have been the Goodyear blimp to record it. There would have been fireworks like you've never seen, even in Washington, D.C. You would have never seen fireworks like I would have had at the resurrection. But instead, you have a resurrected Christ who is quiet and humble and gentle. And he walks out of the tomb, and these two women meet him in the garden. If you're looking for fireworks and you're looking for a light show, that's not where Jesus is found. Jesus is found as a humble, gentle, kind man who God resurrected from the dead. That's where you find him. You find him in the garden at Easter. But please know this. Please know this. That the Bible teaches us and the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Here's what he says. Remember, this was the strongest of the disciples. This was the apostle that denied Jesus while or just prior to his crucifixion. This is him. And here's what he writes. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And here's what I want to tell you. Jesus is a friend. He's a friend that can take your shame, plus your sin and your death, and He defeats it because He is resurrected to new life. He is resurrected to new life. Some of you are sitting here in your shame. He knows. Some of you are sitting here in your sin. He knows. Some of you are here and you're struggling with death. He knows. But please know this. Through faith in Jesus, your shame, your sin, and your death has been conquered through His resurrection life. In closing, read with me what the Apostle Paul wrote. Here's what he wrote, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Here's what he writes. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, and the next words are awesome, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I want you to listen carefully. The cross, during the time of Jesus, said something about you. If you were nailed to a cross, it was about shame. It was about who you were and how you lived. It was a stigma. It was something that if you said, oh, my friend Joe was crucified, people would think of him in a shameful way. Isn't it amazing that Jesus used the cross as a place to triumph over shame? The instrument that brings the price of sin, the instrument that brings shame, the instrument that brings death became the focal point through which Jesus triumphed over those things. What was meant to shame him became the place of his ultimate, ultimate victory. And it's proven to us because just a couple of days later, Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead and God took him with his shame, my shame, with my sin that had been placed on him and now death has been conquered through Christ. You see, Easter makes no sense without both sides of the coin. My friend Jesus makes no sense unless you clearly understand He identifies with you in your shame, with your sin, and he identifies with you through death. But he has been resurrected to new life over all three. In him, you can find a hope and a peace and a joy and a strength that can be found nowhere else. Would you stand with me as we conclude our time and we celebrate together the reality of the resurrected Jesus, my friend. Before we worship, I just wanna pray a brief prayer. Jesus, thank you that you took our shame and our sin and our death and you nailed it to a cross and you are victorious over all three. We worship you. Let's worship together. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy he has given us new birth, new life into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead he has taken our shame, our sin and our death and like a true friend he identifies with us in the midst of it God bless you God bless you And I pray that through the grace and the love of Jesus Christ, that the hope of the resurrection, the hope of a risen king, the hope of a friend who was resurrected from the dead, who bore our shame, our sin, and our death, that God's blessing through him would rest upon you. And now, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. And may He give you peace. Let's take just a moment to sing this song through one more time. God bless you. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Let's give Him a clap offering this morning. Forever he is born. Bye.
2: is overcome. We sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah.
1: We sing hallelujah. Christ is overcome. We sing hallelujah.
2: He is the light in the darkness, who took on flesh and took our place, the weight of the world on his
1: shoulders, the weight of the world on his shoulders. He is risen Up from the grave He is risen
2: you we thank you for this day that we had to celebrate you father and your resurrection how you conquered death you defeated death you defeated shame you defeated sin I pray you'd be with us as we go from this place and that we would be able to continue to rejoice throughout this day in Jesus name amen go in peace